Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to the Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles for optimizing human performance. I am Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we are joined by sports physiologist and bioscientist, Evan Pycon. What does the physiology of a hybrid athlete look like? We're much more familiar with the physiology of a strength athlete or an endurance athlete. And through this season of the progress theory, we've discussed how training in one domain could positively influence the other. So, for example, strength training could improve running economy, which leads to increases in running performance. However, physiologically, can strength and endurance coexist? Well, in this episode, Evan and I will discuss the cardiovascular system and hybrid training, how muscle size can affect endurance performance, and have a go at trying to discuss how far we think hyperperformance can go. But before we get into the episode, I just want to tell you a little bit about our sponsors because without them, this podcast would not be possible. I wanted to express my gratitude to my production partner, Cult Media. Cult Media has been instrumental in the development and success of the Progress Theory. They have created brand guides, comprehensive podcast strategies, enhanced the podcast production, developed custom workflows for me, and edited and mixed all of the video, audio, and social media content. Cult Media's simple coach, create, and collaborate process has saved me hundreds of hours in podcast production, resolved countless technical issues, and consistently helped me to improve my podcasting game. So if you want to establish and engage your audience or are ready to launch your own podcast, head to www.cult.media, that's cult with a K, to learn more. Also, thank you to Human24, fueling human potential and optimizing everyday human performance and well-being. The supplement range at Human24 not only helps improve your lifestyle, it optimizes it. The Human24 products are designed to fit around your circadian rhythms from the moment you wake up to key moments in the day when you need optimal focus to getting the best night's sleep. There is a product to optimize each phase of the day. My personal favorite is the Live On Form Pack, consisting of the products Rise, Flow, and Pre-Sleep. Rise is for the morning, and it's my absolute favorite. It's a drink that tastes amazing, it hydrates me, and improves my focus to win the morning. At 2 p.m., I take Flow, which is a caffeine-free nootropic, perfect for improving alertness and concentration during that mid-afternoon slump. And finally, I take pre-sleep just before bed, which is a comprehensive nighttime complex, perfect to support a performance-driven lifestyle. Check out the website www.hmn24.com for all their products, articles, and links to their awesome podcast for those wanting to learn more about human performance. You can even check out the episode I did with them. I thoroughly enjoyed my chat 
with Phil Lerney, co-founder of Human24, and it has led to an awesome collaboration with Human24 supporting the progress theory. If you want a 10% discount on all Human24 products, head to their website via the links in our Instagram bios of the Progress Theory or my personal Instagram account at Dr. Phil Price, or use the code PhilPrice at checkout. As always, follow and subscribe to the Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube and check out all of our other episodes. Here is Evan Pycon. Evan, how are we? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing really well. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on to The Progress Theory. I remember when I first came across your work, it was actually on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And they're almost like your Instagram posts are almost like little blog posts. And they mm-hmm. clearly are leading to your other work, which are on, I think it's on Think Tank, at medium.com, that sort of thing. But I remember always reading them, being really interested. In, and at the bottom would always have like a to be continued. And mm-hmm. I was just like... Oh no, I've got, to, I've got to find where this is leading because it was actually really interesting and really was challenging some ideas that I had myself. So, uh, which I thought was really good because I really think Instagram should be something that it's an introductory thing to a topic. You know, th- you like this area? Come read this where you can go into yeah. it in a bit more detail rather than, you know, I hate it where people would just see something on Instagram, try and memorize it and then use it, you know, use it as a, a window to a new area to learn. That's how I first came across. So it's great that i've gone from that to this to be able to ask a load of questions now yeah i'm looking forward to it yeah before we start do you want to give a bit of an update or a bit of an overview of yourself and where you are now yeah absolutely so again my name is evan Pycon. i'm a physiologist and researcher uh most people probably know me from training think tank i worked for the company for about six years as a performance coach and uh, sports scientists. And while I was there, I worked with a lot of top CrossFit Games competitors, a uh, few people that have stepped on the podium as individuals and teams. And over the past few years, I also worked as an applied physiologist for a company called Emergent Performance Lab. While I was there, I consulted with a lot of uh, US professional sport teams and uh, United States military special operations. These days, I work as a physiologist full time for a biotech company. So my main job is building biosensors and working on analytics with those. So I've kind of bounced around a little bit over the years. Now, that sounds really awesome. I would love to ask around your time at Think Tank, because that very much sounds like you're in the trenches, working with athletes, getting as much data as possible. And that's kind of what I gathered from the blog post I was reading of yours. Mm-hmm. You know, you were trying new things and that's how you were learning. Um, so mm-hmm. What was it like working with the CrossFit athletes at Training Think Tank? It was a very cool experience. It was very humbling to start before getting into CrossFit myself. I was an endurance athlete. So I spent a lot of time in that world. I had actually coached quite a few endurance athletes before really transitioning into coaching with CrossFit. And over the years at Training Think Tank, it really challenged my ways of thinking um, because prior to doing a lot of that hands-on work there, you couldn't really find a lot of information online about what the physiology of a top CrossFit athlete looks like, let alone even just a hybrid athlete more broadly. And over the years there, putting those athletes through testing, I've done physiologic testing on low-level intermediate level CrossFit athletes all the way up to top podium games competitors. And 
you just find things that you don't see in textbooks. And that that really forced me to have to rethink how I thought about physiology and particularly systemic cardiovascular control, which is really a topic that no one really talks about in exercise physiology. But I actually think it's one of the most important uh, disciplines to understand, to really get a sense of how to train an athlete that wants to be very strong and also be enduring and do an endurance sport while carrying 200 pounds of body weight. Yeah, certainly. What was the main learning points you found when you moved from predominantly working with endurance athletes to suddenly going to CrossFit athletes? I mean, I guess, you know, body weight is going to be such a big factor when it comes to the physiological system. Like, What were the main findings you think that you found then? Or should I frame the question as what were the biggest learning curves that once you got to testing with the CrossFit athletes, you're like, oh, I didn't realize it was like that or that happens. Yeah. So one of the one of the early things that just kind of messed with my mind for a bit is CrossFit athletes have disproportionately well-developed mitochondrial density, but simultaneously tend to have poor capillary density, which you don't see in endurance sports. That just doesn't really make a lot of sense if you're training like an endurance athlete would train. You tend to see those things scale with one another. But what you see with a lot of CrossFit athletes is they have great mitochondrial density, so they can utilize oxygen in the peripheral tissues at rates way beyond what you would see in an endurance athlete. But because the CrossFit athletes haven't spent the time developing that peripheral capillarization, they have a poor ability to dilate their blood vessels in the periphery, so they just kind of fizzle themselves out. The other thing that's kind of interesting is the athletes that do have that capillarization in the periphery and they can dilate their blood vessels, a lot of times they don't have good enough cardiac output for their brains to allow them to do that. So this is where we need to start thinking about systemic cardiovascular control. One of the things that you see in the endurance literature, we were to do like an arm cranking upper body ergometer and you try and establish a VO2 max or a VO2 peak because it's very contextual it's not going to be very high. So you go to cycling and it goes even higher and then maybe rowing or running, some things that use quite a bit of muscle mass, then you could establish a true VO2 max. There's this relationship that as you use more and more of your total skeletal muscle mass, you could hit higher and higher VO2 peaks until you reach your true maximal total body oxygen consumption, your VO2 max. But that actually tends to occur at about 40 to 60% of total skeletal muscle mass being used. In CrossFit, you often use more than that. The reason why your VO2 actually plateaus when you use that much muscle mass is you're not capable of vasodilating more than roughly 60% of your total skeletal muscle. And the reason for that is that one, you don't have enough blood in your body to do that. If you vasodilate more than 60% of your muscle, not enough blood, you're going to have a hypotensive event. Additionally, your cardiac output can't ramp up enough to maintain your arterial blood pressure. So if you did vasodilate that much and your master pump isn't able to maintain your blood pressure, you would have autonomic nervous system failure. So when you're dealing with a CrossFit athlete who's having to exercise very high percentages of total skeletal muscle mass, and it's a lot of muscle on some of these men and women, but they're incapable of doing it, you start to see types of limitations in these sports that you would never see in an endurance athlete. 
So a lot of these athletes, they're really just limited by their systemic cardiovascular control. One, could they dilate blood vessels? Two, will their brain actually allow them to do it? And because their brain's never going to allow them to dilate that much skeletal muscle, you start to see very weird limitations emerging that you're really forced to dig into the literature and try and understand how to reconcile these things because traditional endurance training models just aren't equipped for that type of demand. And it's even different than just a normal hybrid athlete that wants to be muscular and strong and run really fast miles or marathons because the CrossFit athlete has to do everything at once. Mm. So, so just to sort of re-clarify, obviously through that capillarization, with the level of muscle mass that they have, the brain won't let them do that because if they did, they have a chance of fainting. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So if even if they have the capillary density, if you dilate too much skeletal muscle, you need to maintain your arterial blood pressure. Mm. Arterial blood pressure is one of the most tightly regulated things in our bodies. The way that I think about it is, imagine that your heart is the water pump in your house and all of the pipes in your house are your arteries and the faucet in your kitchen is your muscle. So right now you go into your kitchen and you open up the faucet and water pours out. Imagine you increase the diameter of every single pipe in your house by 25%. Now you turn on all your faucets, water's not going to come out because there's not enough water in this systemic circulation of pipes to maintain your water pressure. Mm -hmm. The body is very similar. If you dilate too much skeletal muscle mass, you don't have enough blood in your body to maintain that arterial pressure. And cardiac output doesn't increase that much anyway. At most, cardiac output could only increase roughly seven to tenfold. That's not really a lot. One of the things that people fail to appreciate is the thing that determines blood flow to the skeletal muscle is not primarily cardiac output. It's the ability to dilate a blood vessel. Because if you look at uh, Laplace's law, the blood flow to a small blood vessel, the microvasculature in the muscle, is determined by radius to the fourth power. So very small changes in blood vessel radius create humongous changes in blood flow to those tissues. So even if you just dilate a little bit, cardiac output doesn't really need to increase that much to get more blood there. So this is where you see this disproportionate relationship. So what I always try to think about is one, can an athlete dilate their blood vessels? Like, do they actually have uh, good vascular conductance? And if they can dilate their blood vessels, do they have good enough cardiac output to actually do it when they're working at high exertion levels? Mm. So to me, even though cardiac output is spoken about is the primary determinant of VO2 max and one of the most important things for performance, I actually see it as a second tier variable. Cardiac output isn't really the thing that we want to increase. It only matters so far as someone actually has the ability to dilate blood vessels, which you can't take for granted because a lot of people are not very good at that. Hmm. Have you ever found someone that had a really good balance between the two? As in, they had high cardiac output or as high as they could, but also had a good capillarization, which enabled them to, I guess, get as much oxygen to the muscle to be utilized more effectively type thing i guess in yeah. experience that with some of those top level crossfit athletes that you work with yeah so 
I have seen it, but it's really only in like a very small subset of these top CrossFit Games competitors. So I think I've tested somewhere in the order of 20 Games competitors. And I've only ever seen this like incredible next level of physiologic development and maybe two or three of them. And they're all people that have been on the podium before. So of course, I haven't tested every podium athlete, but I'd imagine that most of them probably have physiologies that look like this mm. do you think there's a huge genetic component to that or have had their training been so well defined and appropriate for them that has enabled them to get to that level or I yeah think, kind uh, of like did they have a genetic ceiling that was they were mm. able to train towards that genetic ceiling whereas say if mm. i did it <laughs> i would uh, get to like a sub elite level just because i just didn't have the potential there Yeah, I do think there's a genetic component to it just because there's so many genetic factors that influence systemic cardiovascular control. I mean, there's um, the alleles that you have of angiotensin converting enzyme, which impacts the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. That is a really important factor for determining blood pressure. There is how your body regulates sodium, which also impacts blood volume and blood pressure. There's potassium handling. There's what is your blood volume? Blood volume isn't something that we tend to think a lot about, but there's a reason why athletes blood dope. It's because if you increase your blood volume more than you would have otherwise, you're able to sustain higher cardiac outputs. And that is something that is partially determined by genetics among training. So I think it's this mixture where your genetics is like the blueprint, but you need to realize those genetics to present this phenotype that will allow you to beat everyone in your competition. So if you don't have the genetics, you're not going to be a world-class performer, but just because you have them doesn't mean you will either. Genetics are necessary, but not sufficient. You develop those sufficient components through training. So it's very much marriage of these things. Okay. So they give you the opportunity for a seat at the table, but it doesn't mean you're going to sit there unless your training's yeah. correct type of thing. Exactly. It's imagine like a student that gets into your university. You're giving them permission to study there, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be eligible to graduate. And it's very much the same thing. Genetics are like your ticket, your acceptance to be at that location, but you still need to work hard to actually get a degree there. And it's maybe a crude analogy, but that, that tends to be how I think of it. Yeah, 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 of course. What are the physiological differences you often see between a CrossFit athlete and, say, a hybrid athlete? Say you've got someone that wants to be like a powerlifter, but at the same time wants to really improve uh, their 5 or 10K time. Based on what you were talking about earlier regarding mitochondrial density and muscle capillarization uh, and how with uh, endurance athletes they normally rise together uniformly but you're seeing these big differences between the both when it came to crossfit athletes do you see difference between like a crossfit athlete and a hybrid athlete or are they largely relatively similar yeah in my experience they are similar to a degree and i consider like military special operations as hybrid athletes in a sense because they need to develop all these different competencies but they don't need to be able to smash it all together and do it in a five to ten minute period like a crossfitter I've also worked with people that are power lifters and ultra marathon runners. 
So in general, all of these athletes, they need good mitochondrial density, they need good capillary density, they need high cardiac output, good respiratory muscle endurance, optimal levels of tension in the muscle for their task. The difference is, is when you just need to have all of those qualities and when you need to have all of them and use them all within a very short time period. And that's what separates the hybrid athlete from the CrossFitter. There's very simple things like a hybrid athlete needs to have good diaphragm muscle strain, both because the diaphragm is a major spinal stabilizer. So if they're trying to be a power lifter, you need good diaphragm muscle strain. They also need good diaphragm muscle endurance because that's going to allow them to sustain very high ventilation rates when they go and run their event. Well, for a CrossFitter, as a simple example, they also need those qualities. But what happens when now they're doing a Metcon with a ton of deadlifts at 315 pounds in it, that diaphragm is still having to stabilize their spine. It's also needing to be used to maintain very high ventilation rates for all the other things that they're doing. So it's the same physiology in both of those cases, but it's being used differently. And that's where there's other sports-specific requirements that a CrossFitter has that hybrid athlete doesn't. I wouldn't even necessarily say that this means a CrossFit athlete is more impressive or anything like that. Because it's very clear that a lot of hybrid athletes, like I saw you had uh, Fergus Crawley on a few episodes ago. Yeah. I mean, he does things that most CrossFit Games competitors simply cannot do. Mm. He's stronger than a lot of them are. He could run a mile faster than a lot of them can, let alone his abilities to run very long distances. I'd also imagine, though, CrossFit Games athletes could do things that he cannot do. So they have the same base physiology, but then that's where they layer on the sport specificity to kind of train those weapons for a specific task. Yeah. It shows some kind of attractiveness towards hybrid training because it gives this base physiological state, which then on top of that, you would then uh, do certain training types to try and make it more specific to the sport. But there's no point doing those, say, CrossFit-specific training sessions if you didn't have that sort of hybrid athlete base behind them. Mm -hmm. So the way that I kind of think about this is if we think of like a CrossFit athlete's VO2 max, they need a very high VO2 max to be a good CrossFitter. And VO2 is literally the maximum integrated capacity of the pulmonary, cardiovascular, and muscular systems that could uptake, transport, and utilize oxygen. Very important factor for those athletes. But just because you have a high VO2 max doesn't mean you're going to be a good CrossFitter. So again, it goes back to that it's necessary, but not sufficient. We could have someone come in from a triathlon background, and I have worked with these individuals, and they want to be competitive at CrossFit. I had a guy once he tested in with the VO2 max, I think it was 81 milliliters per kilogram per minute, wow. which is like mm. world-class endurance athlete. And we started putting him through CrossFit-specific testing, and I'm like, oh, your back squat's 195 pounds. It doesn't really matter that you have an amazing VO2 max because you can't even lift the weights that are being used in the Metcon. You can't lift the weight, you can't play the game. So for him, his upper ceiling was so high, but his lower floor, his sport-specific competencies were so low that for him to get better at CrossFit, he needs to raise that floor. Where now you take some kind of bubble-level CrossFit athletes that... Maybe their VO2 max is 60 milliliters per kilogram per minute. Definitely respectable, but for a top CrossFit Games athlete, probably not enough. But they've gotten so good at their sport-specific competencies that that lower floor is right under it. 
So they need to raise their ceiling so they could raise their floor. So for each CrossFitter or hybrid athlete, you need to see where's their ceiling, where's their floor, and you need to push the ceiling up. So then you could raise the floor or you just need to push the floor up. It's kind of a nuanced way of figuring out yeah. what they actually need to do to improve. If you don't mind me asking, what were the VO2 max values for the top CrossFit athletes that you were uh, working with? If, if 60 is like respectable, but it wasn't necessarily good enough to be a very top level, what type mm -hmm. of VO2 max values were you seeing with the top guys? Yeah. So depending on the athlete, it could be in the high 60s to kind of mid to high 70s. And I think a lot of that difference between individuals comes down to differences in efficiency and economy. One of the things that becomes such a big limiting factor for CrossFitters is that they never really have enough time to get efficient at anything that they're doing. So if you were to like look at their economies compared to a runner, CrossFitters economy on every single movement is just horrible. It's, it's honestly why being able to handle an incredible amount of volume is a fundamental trait of being a CrossFit Games competitor because it just gives you more time to practice. To understand how important economy is, I remember years ago reading a paper um, by Andy Jones at the University of Exeter, and it was when he had put Paul Radcliffe through testing over maybe a five-year period. It was pretty right. early in her career. Yeah, and you see year one, is she has the highest VO2 max in that five-year period. In each year, her VO2 max goes down over this five-year period, but she gets faster and faster at her race times. And you're like, how does this make sense? And it's because her economy improved by such a large degree year after year that she was actually able to run faster even though she was consuming less oxygen. And it goes to show how important economy is. Keep in mind, Paula Radcliffe, how many miles was she running per week over those five years to get those improvements in economy? Mm. Probably somewhere in the order of 75 to 100 plus miles. Has any CrossFitter done any movement in their sport that much? Probably not. No, definitely not. Otherwise, it'll be, I mean, they train high volumes anyway, but imagine the uh, amount of training volume you'd have to do if you tried to maintain <laughs> those training hours in running, yeah. rowing, cycling, gymnastics, and all the other things they have to do as well. Yeah. A million thrusters and muscle ups a week. Yeah, yeah, certainly. If you're working with a hybrid athlete, what kind of physiological testing do you think you would do to determine what physiological limiters they may have so you can use that information to then uh, inform their training so i know you talked about ceilings and floors and seeing where you need to work on do we raise the floor do we raise the ceiling all those types of questions um with a hybrid athlete what kind of things would you do to try and determine uh what you would need to do with their training yeah so to to maybe put like a little bit of a pen in this what do we want to say this athlete's trying to do like powerlifting and ultra running or like powerlifting and running a mile? Because that's really going to dictate yeah. um, how I would go about this. Um, let's say, because we've mentioned him already, Fergus, Fergus Crawley. Mm. Uh, he's training for a um, extreme triathlon mm -hmm. at the moment. Uh, and obviously he's a powerlifter as well. So mm -hmm. that type of distance, you know, you're hitting... Uh, well, I think it's, uh, the triathlon he's doing is 
Ironman distance, but through the hills, yeah. <laughs> through the hills yeah. of Scotland. So, um, yeah, that kind of distance with the with the mm-hmm. endurance component of the high, hybrid training. Yeah, so I'll contextualize this for what I would probably put him through. Keep in mind, I don't know him. I don't know all of his measurements, but I could make some assumptions about him based on just knowing some of the insane feats that he's done. Mm. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he probably already has quite high of a VO2 max. Probably doesn't need to improve by that meaningful of a degree. I mean, he's put down sub five minute mile, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not going to need to be running at that pace for uh, extreme triathlon. So some of the things that I'd be really curious for knowing about him is what is his critical speed look like on these different disciplines that he's doing in his event? And the reason that I'm interested in critical speed is we could kind of overlay that with another concept, which is the critical metabolic rate. That's the metabolic rate where if you're working at a higher output than this metabolic rate, you're outstripping your own oxygen supply. If you're working at a lower intensity, you are replenishing the oxygen supply in your tissues. A lot of athletes that tend to carry quite a bit of muscle like he does their critical metabolic rate occurs at a relatively low percentage of their VO2 max. So for him, he probably doesn't need to get that upper ceiling higher. He probably needs to bring that floor upwards so he could work at higher relative intensities without outstripping his own oxygen supply. That also becomes something that's of interest to me because that really ties into his ability to coordinate contractions. For an athlete who is that strong, they're very good at contracting their muscles with a lot of force. That's what makes him uh, such a force when he is squatting and putting up these really impressive numbers. But by virtue of that, these athletes are often very bad at relaxing their muscles. So one of the things that you see is in more intermediate athletes, contraction and relaxation tend to take about the same amount of time. Then as you kind of get to a higher tier of athlete, eventually you get to a tipping point where people that are world-class athletes could actually relax the muscle in less than half the time it takes to contract the muscle. The relaxation component is so important because that's when blood actually gets back into the muscle. When you contract, blood can't get into a muscle, but when you relax, it can. So if he doesn't have good muscle coordination, he's going to be pulling the blood on the venous side of circulation when he's actually doing this ultra triathlon. If you're pulling blood on the venous side of circulation, which veins could extend quite a bit, a lot of blood could really pull there. That's less blood that's getting back to your heart. Again, because the cardiovascular system is a big closed circuit and you have a finite amount of blood, the less blood that gets back to your heart, the less cardiac preload you're going to have. So you're going to get less stretching of the heart between contractions. And that means your stroke volume is going to decrease. And if your stroke volume is decreasing, that means your cardiac output is going to decrease. So now he may not be able to maintain the same degree of vasodilation in the peripheries. So I'd be trying to get different measurements of these various areas because I can make assumptions for him. I doubt he's limited by his ability to utilize oxygen in the tissues. If he were limited by that, he wouldn't be as strong and powerful as he is. So I'd be trying to fill in these other gaps to get a more well-rounded understanding. I'd also be very curious about his respiratory muscle endurance. Um, A lot of times, athletes that are very strong, they have incredibly strong diaphragms, but their diaphragms are also stiff. And they also tend to have very closed down infrasternal angles. So if you think of the angle at the bottom of the rib cage, it tends to get clamped down 
you want a wider infrasternal angle so the diaphragm could expand and the ribs could expand during inspiration. So these are other things that I would be looking at to see um, is his diaphragm muscle enduring? Could he take large breaths and maintain those high ventilation rates without his diaphragm muscle fatiguing? So if we could collect all this info on him, then we could figure out what are his actual limiters and least common denominators that he needs to train. Because for that amount of volume, you just don't want to waste time anywhere. What kind of technology would you use to help with these assessments, uh, especially around the ability to the muscle to relax? Because um, mm-hmm. I think that is something a lot of people struggle with. Yeah, so... I'm going to give an answer that's probably not very satisfying for the muscle relaxation. Um, For example, a NEARS device could allow you to take a peek into the muscle and look at muscle deoxygenation, all these factors, but the NEARS devices on the market have too slow of a frame rate to be able to actually see second-by-second contraction. So a MOXIE monitor, for example, gives a readout every two seconds. When someone's running at a high speed, it's 180 foot strikes per minute. So the frame rate's too slow. Um, The reason that I'm going to give an unsatisfying answer is that the organization I work for, we develop biosensors and new types of technology. We've actually developed a device like that that could take 100 measurements a second, but it's not publicly available yet. And it more than likely won't be until early 2023. So right now, in the general public, there's really no instrument that could take that measurement. Mm. <laughs> so, so that's a little bit of a tough one. Presumably, once that technology becomes available, then you could actually look at the individual cost of each muscle contraction, and you could look at blood flow between contractions, and you could start to get a better understanding of these processes. Yeah. And what, when you say contractions, what kind of exercises would you do to try and are you trying to mimic the exercises that they do? So, for example, you, you know, you'd get Fergus running or would you just get them doing, I don't know, squatting, deadlift or whatever it takes just to allow the muscle to go through f- full range so you can see how it how the blood flow works as it contracts through that full range? Yeah, so I, I'd want to see, assuming the ultra triathlon, he's biking, he's running, I'd want to see it on those movements specifically because the joint angles, the actual frequencies of movement that he's going to be doing, the actual force of contraction on his actual event-specific paces, I'd want to see all of those. Because oftentimes what you find is even athletes that have good coordination running, they tend to have certain speeds that they're very well coordinated. So I come from an endurance background, and I know for myself, I used to have this really odd bell curve where if I was running too slow, running would be exceptionally difficult for me. And if I actually ran faster it would start to feel easier to a point, of course, keep going faster, it's going to become difficult. And that's because I was very well coordinated within certain ranges of speed. And you see this a lot of times in even high level runners, which is if they run too slow, they just have poor economy. So for him, I would want to know what is his economy look like at the specific paces that he's running, because he may actually have better economy at faster paces he can't run those faster paces when doing an ultra Ironman because you're going to fizzle out and you're outstrip your own oxygen supply. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Last time I had uh, like a gait assessment, like I was really inefficient at 10 kilometers per hour pace, but I was much better at 12 
kilometers per hour pace yeah but i definitely could not maintain that for i don't know four or five hours if i was doing a marathon or an ultra marathon um i am not the greatest runner but uh yeah i can definitely definitely relate to that with in terms of because you said you wanted to say get moxie monitors on fergus when he does running when he does cycling and i think a lot of people can relate to the fact they can feel that pooling of blood within the muscle particularly during cycling around the quadriceps they have that feeling and i guess with your hip flex in a certain way does that influence the ability of venous return and stop pooling within the blood like the body position actively affects the result hence why you want to look at the differences between running and cycling for example yeah so the position of your body is definitely going to influence this for a lot of reasons when we think about pushing blood around the body of course our hearts the master pump that pushes blood outwards but the heart's not doing anything to get blood back to our heart that's where you have called the second heart in the working muscles and that's the skeletal muscle pump there's also the thoracic and abdominal pump, but we'll just ignore that because it's confusing and annoying to talk about. Um, so the heart's pushing blood out, the muscle's pushing blood back in or back to the heart. Well, if the muscle's not coordinated, it's not pushing blood back effectively. If you're contracting your muscles with too much force, you're actually creating a tourniquet in the tissue where blood is still going to be able to get in, but it won't get out. And the reason for that is that arteries are... Uh, you can think of them as more reinforced than veins are. Uh, veins are thin walls. They have large lumens, so they can expand a lot. And they're a low pressure system. Or arteries are very thick walled, have smaller lumens, and they're a high pressure system. So if you have ever seen those garden hoses that have the like reinforced mesh webbing around them, mm-hmm. that's an artery. The normal garden hose is vein. So when you're contracting with a lot of force, you may not be creating enough force to compress an artery, but you're definitely compressing that vein. So blood goes into the muscle and it can't escape. That's really what the pump is when you're doing bodybuilding training and you're getting a pump in your biceps, but you don't want that pump when you're doing endurance training. And this is actually an issue that a lot of hybrid athletes run into um, when they're trying to just do their endurance training in general because they're not very well coordinated at low intensities. And a lot of times they are very strong. So they could actually create enough pressure in the muscle to cut off their own blood flow. They actually have trouble doing what people tend to call like aerobic base work because they may be working at a very low heart rate, 110, 20, 30 beats per minute. So you'd think, oh, this is an easy intensity for them. But when you take a peek in the muscle, you see they're actually pulling blood and deoxygenating those peripheral tissues. So even though they're doing what should be easy aerobic training on paper, they are actually in peripheral hypoxia and it tends to be a very uh, potent stressor to their tissues. And this is part of why they often don't see very good peripheral capillarization like I had mentioned earlier. What develops very good peripheral capillarization is when you're getting a high enough blood flow through the muscles to create sheer stress on the vasculature. That's going to cause an increase in a molecule called VEGF, which is vascular endothelial growth factor. If you're constantly cutting off your blood flow and you're not getting that high rate pressure product in the periphery, you're not getting a lot of VEGF release. And then you're not going to get the proper gene expression that you need to actually confer that adaptation. I think I saw or read a post about this 
not too long ago where you were saying people were often prescribing themselves recovery sessions where their heart rate would be around 110, 120, for example. But then without realizing they were creating so much stress within the tissue that technically it wasn't a recovery session. From the outside, it was a recovery session. But on yeah. the muscle level, it wasn't at all. Is this very similar? Yeah, it, it, it is very much that. And this is where like the protocol on paper is not going to do the same thing for every individual. And you could actually, I mean exercise science has come really far away to the degree that we could actually do molecular exercise physiology studies now. So traditionally in exercise science, we would give everyone a training protocol and we would say, did they get fitter? But now we could go a step further and we could say, how has this training protocol influenced their gene expression? Because ultimately all we're really trying to do with exercise is impact gene expression because that's what creates the adaptation. It's all chemistry. So there are studies where they'll take a basal blood measurement from everyone and they'll create what's called the DNA microarray. So this is where we're thinking of the epigenome. They'll say, what is the baseline gene expression of all these relevant genes? In this case, we're thinking of uh, VEGFA, which is what creates blood vessel growth. And you have everyone do these endurance training protocols for how many weeks and you take another blood sample and you do a DNA microarray and you say, how is their VEGF level changed? Are they expressing this gene more? And depending on how the volume and intensity impacts a given individual, you see some people have these humongous spikes in VEGFA. Other people, there's really no change. Maybe it's just like a maintenance training dose for them. And other people, it just goes down, which means they actually have less of this than they did before doing that training protocol. Maybe the volume or intensity wasn't enough or something wasn't right. So this is where, of course, that... It's very expensive to do these types of analysis. You also need to know how to do a bioinformatics analysis, which is a little bit of a tricky thing as well. But I'd imagine in the future, this will be something that's generally accessible that athletes could use and see how training impacts their gene expression. But in the short term, we have kind of proxy technologies. This is where we could use things like NEARS, or we could uh, look at hemodynamics or do metabolic analysis to try and understand how training is impacting someone's physiology. And from that, you could start to piece together, well, is this thing that looks like active recovery or aerobic base work, actually aerobic base work for this athlete? A heart rate monitor may not be the appropriate tool for that, where something like a muscle oximeter may be the appropriate tool. And as these technologies progressively get cheaper over time, it's going to be like a heart rate monitor. In the 1980s, no one used heart rate because it was incredibly expensive. And now everyone has a heart rate monitor there. And every watch, you could get it for maybe 10 euros in some cases. Um, I'd imagine these other technologies will be like that as well once, obviously, manufacturing costs uh, become less and uh, people start to show an interest in them as well. Yeah. It really is exciting where the training and exercise science is going to go, isn't it? Like, I'm sure it was only five years ago that the only place where you could really do metabolic testing was like at a university or some, some labs outside of the university system that had quite a lot of money. But now we're getting coaches and regular trainers that are, that are creating their own labs, which is 
which is really exciting because it just means more data really and more things yeah. and opportunities for people to explore um i can't i can't wait i especially can't wait to see what happens regarding that near system that with the frame rate of 100 per second mm-hmm. compared to yeah. you know, one per two seconds i mean that's is that's such a big jump and that's going to bring in so much more information yeah i'm very excited to see how people uh start using that and i mean yeah going back to your point that more research is being done in general i mean five years ago exercise science studies were being done at universities but now even some of the biggest companies in the world are starting to get invested in this like actually the highest funded exercise science lab that has collected more data than any other lab in the world is apple now who would think that apple has an exercise science lab but they do and the reason that they're investing so much money in that is probably because they're going to be rolling out some of these new measurements into their wearables. So, I mean, once you have these very large companies starting to produce these technologies at scale, that's where you could see the research really changing because, of course, like the average sports tech company, they don't have that much money, so they can't get their production costs that low. Mm-hmm. When you have these giants getting involved in these industries, I think that's going to cause these huge paradigm shifts over the next few years. What new information do you think you're going to find with your new near system with such a increased frame rate? How do you think that's, what information do you think that's going to give you that then starts questioning your original beliefs around what happens with training? Or does it, yeah, so- do you think it might just clarify what you already knew just with more detail? Yeah, I I think it'll be a little bit of both. I mean, you could never really know what you don't know. So I will say that. Um, The other thing, unfortunately, I can't talk about too much right now is that it's also going to measure about a dozen other biomarkers. And I think those are the ones that are really going to uh, show some things that we're not expecting, particularly because some of them are biomarkers that have never been developed before that our team has figured out a way to actually measure them. So there's not even exercise science literature on how these things change during exercise. So everything will just be new territory to be explored. So that's kind of, yeah. What recommendations would you give to someone that at the moment doesn't have access to this, uh, to these technologies? Um, say for example, they don't want their recovery sessions to actually not be recovery sessions within the muscle. What recommendations would you give to a coach that hasn't got that technology yet, but wants to make the right training and programming decisions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the most prudent question because the reality is, is most people are never going to use these technologies. So most of what I've honestly done over the years is figure out how to get the benefits without having to use the tech. So a big one for a hybrid athlete is their active recovery sessions have to look different than the average endurance athlete. One of the ways that they could do this is by breaking things up much more. So let's say instead of, and athletes hate doing this because it's so boring, but let's say we had an endurance athlete, a cyclist, and they're going to ride for 30 minutes on their watt bike at 175 watts. And let's just say that's an active recovery pace. If they were a hybrid athlete, what that may have to look like is 60 sets of 30 seconds with a five to 10 second break between. You're like, why does that five to 10 second break matter? 
Um, well, the reason for that is that that's going to give them a chance to fully relax their muscles and get a hyperemic response in the tissue. So blood flow is going to increase over baseline and they'll reoxygenate the tissues. In theory, it's an intensity that the athlete will feel like cycling at that active recovery pace is so easy that they could do it for hours, that they're not going to want to break it up into 60 sets in that example. It's not the point. It's not to make it feel easier. It's for them to actually get the blood flow response that they need to get these aerobic-based adaptations. So that's a super simple one. Um, another one for hybrid athletes is accepting the fact that they're probably not fit enough to actually run and do active recovery work. And that sounds extreme because some of these athletes I've worked with could run sub five minute miles. And I would still tell them they're probably not fit enough to jog and do active recovery work. Wow. So for them, it may have to be walking at a very brisk pace, maybe even just walking uphill at a brisk pace. Um, because for these athletes, when they're running at a slow pace, there's more vertical displacement in their stride. And because they weigh a lot more than the average endurance athlete, there's a lot of muscle compression when they make foot contact. And again, they end up cutting off their own blood flow. So even though it feels easy and they could do it forever, it's not giving them what they want from a basic aerobic development standpoint. Pool running could be a good substitution for them as well. So these are really simple, practical, easy fixes that I think are uh, worthwhile for these individuals. It doesn't really change their training that much. And a lot of times it's just making these very minor tweaks rather than fundamentally changing everything that they're doing. Mm. Would these sessions be essential, not only because they're there to try and improve recovery, but they're essential to try and avoid pooling of the blood, avoid sort of like or improve venous return, that type of thing. Like that's a physiological reactional response that we want to train within our athletes. So does these sessions become really, really quite important to try and improve uh, blood flow for these athletes? Yes. Yeah, so, so if they're truly doing it for a recovery standpoint, in some cases, I don't even know if the recovery session is necessary at all. But hypothetically, let's maybe shift the frame and say they're trying to do this as like a basic aerobic development or aerobic base or zone one, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's where these strategies could be very useful. You could even use these strategies on some of their higher intensity work as well, though. So let's say I'm working with an uh, endurance athlete and they have more of a traditional build for an endurance athlete, and I'm having them do five 1K repeats at slightly faster than their 5K base. So essentially, they're doing 5K volume, slightly faster than they could run a 5K. That's obviously because they're breaking it up a bit. For one of these hybrid athletes, I may structure that differently. I may have them do five 200-meter runs at that pace with a very short break between those 200-meter runs to say 200 meters, rest 20 seconds and do that five times, then have a longer rest and go through five series of that. So they're still accumulating 5,000 meters of running at the same pace, but they're breaking the individual 1Ks up a little bit more so they're able to restore blood flow knowing that they're not going to be able to do that as well as a more traditional endurance athlete. And the reason why I think these types of tweaks and adjustments are so important is the types of training protocols that we see in endurance sports or strength sports for that matter were refined over time for athletes with a very specific set of physiologic traits. What becomes 
prudent to note is that when you take someone that has a very different training background, different type of physiology, and you try and put them in that sport, they're going to have to train in a very different way. And those types of training protocols aren't always well established because there just hasn't really been a need for it before now. I mean, in the past 10 years ago, I don't think anyone was taking serious the idea of running a sub five minute mile and squatting 500 pounds. That would have kind of been this like pipe dream thing that was just impossible. But now there's enough people that are actually interested in these things that I think the training protocols are yet to really catch up to people's desires to do these things. I've noticed a lot of trainers, uh, athletes that quite often, they like the CrossFit, they like the functional fitness. And I'll see sessions which are like 40 minutes or an hour where they've got 500 meters on the bike. Uh, then they have got 500 meters on the rower. Then they've got 500 meters on the ski. Mm -hmm. And they'll just repeat that. That's like their zone two work. They'll just repeat mm -hmm. that over and over again. And I often looked at that and thought, oh, I wonder if it is because quite often these athletes, they come from either backgrounds like rugby, football, where it's very intermittent. They prefer mm -hmm. the intermittent style. They just don't want to sit on one piece of equipment for, for an hour. I know, let's yeah. get three pieces of equipment and just move around them constantly. I've often wondered if that's because that's just, they prefer that. And now I'm starting to rethink, actually, have they found a little bit of a trick? And just by moving from one piece of equipment to the other, it gives them that five second break, which then breaks it up, improves blood flow, uh, and actually is having a beneficial, <laughs> a beneficial response to the training. Maybe they've done something which they should have been doing or, well, put it this way, I've often think, oh, why don't you just uh, stay on for a bike for an hour? Is that because staying on a bike is hard and you want to avoid that when really they're actually doing something correct based on certain adaptations? Yeah, I think it could be a little bit of both because having worked with a lot of CrossFitters, I will say it is a crowd that very much likes novelty, hmm. um, tends to kind of crave that. So I think them wanting to do their aerobic development in that fashion might have to do with that a bit. A lot of them just don't like to mm. sit still and do the same thing. But I also think there's something to them finding something that works for them because they're allowing themselves to reoxygenate these peripheral tissues while still getting this central cardiovascular development. So it may actually be a good approach for them. I've also seen other things work well for these individuals. And this sounds so uh, silly, and it, it looks kind of ridiculous when people do it, but if a CrossFitter wants to like row, for example, for their active recovery work, they could elevate the front end of the rower slightly so it's a little bit higher up. It almost looks like they're trying to row up a hill. And the reason for that is that there's going to be less pooling in the lower limbs because they're elevating their lower limbs relative to their core. So it's going to be easier for blood to get back to the heart versus a normal concept to rower, it's actually tilted in the other direction with the feet even lower. So more blood is going to pool there and it's going to be hard to push that blood back. So there's even like weird little tips and tricks that people could do like that to better get these adaptations without actually having to change their training. They're going to row for 30 minutes anyway. Just pop a 10-pound bumper, 15-pound bumper plate under the front. Yeah, that's a great idea. I never really thought of that. I can imagine someone listening to this podcast now and they, they take it to the extreme where the, their row is now like <laughs> a 90 degree angle. They're rowing upwards. Yeah. It'll be like ego yeah. lifting on Instagram or something like that. Yeah. Well, at that point, you're going to have to be 
using a lot of hamstring strength to actually slide yourself upwards. That's yeah, impressive yeah. in a completely different way. <laughs> all arms and all it is, is like this extension <laughs> yeah. coming from your lip. Going to what Fergus Crawley achieved regarding the, I think it was the 250 kilo squat uh, and the marathon and the sub five minute mile. Where do you think hybrid training could go? So that seems to be a bit of a peak at the moment. That's something that mm-hmm. people see as kind of like, I don't know, the four-minute mile at the moment. Can that be? Can we go further than that? Yeah. Where do you think a hybrid athlete has the potential to go? Could we see 300-pound squat, no, 300-kilo squat and a sub-three-hour marathon? Or has that even been done? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm... I have no idea what it's been done, but I mean, the fact that he has done what he has done, that Adam Klink has done what he's done, I mean, to think that that is the pinnacle of what humans could do, I think is just completely outrageous. I mean, it, the barrier has to be further than that. Mm. I just have trouble believing that that is the strongest and highest capacity a human being will ever reach. That said, I don't know where the peak is. I think there's ways to figure this out. For example, in it was like the 1970s, Michael Joyner had basically estimated the fastest that he thought a human being could ever run a marathon based off of mathematical models. He said, okay, someone that's going to run a sub two hour marathon, they're going to need to have a VO2 max that is at least this high. But he also knew that as VO2 max gets higher and higher, you become less efficient this idea that you can't hit the double jackpot, you can't have the highest VO2 max and the highest economy, there's actual metabolic trade-offs. So he said they need a very high but reasonable VO2. They need a higher than average economy. They need a lactate threshold that falls at this level relative to their VO2 and needed a bunch of back of the napkin calculations. He's like, I think the fastest marathon ever is going to be about a 156 point something everyone's like, no way. No one's ever going to run a sub two hour marathon. I mean, at the time, the world's record was like two minutes, six or two hours, six minutes or something. And he's like, no, it's going to be done. The interesting thing is Eliud Kipchoge pretty much perfectly hits on all of those different markers that Michael Joyner expected. Kipchoge is a very high VO2 max, but it is not the highest VO2 max out of world-class marathoners by any means. But his lactate threshold in his economy pretty much fall in line with Joyner's calculations. I'd imagine you could do something similar. You could say, what would be the most optimal frame for squatting 300 kilos? You'd probably find that's probably not the most optimal frame for a sub three hour marathon. So you'd have to find what is this trade off of height, weight to be able to accomplish this? What do they need in terms of VO2 max, dot, 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 et cetera? And then what I think you may find once you get to some level of development in those different areas is that the amount of training to achieve both of those goals just becomes so much that people won't be able to handle it. So I think people will run into a recovery issue in the ability to layer on enough specific volume before you run into these real physiologic bottlenecks. Because again, we're not talking about a sub two hour marathon and a 300 kilo squat. It's probably never going to happen for a lot of reasons from a physiology standpoint, someone that big that could squat 300 kilos, they're never going to have a high enough economy to run a sub two hour marathon. But I think you could start to figure out where those physiologic limits are. And then you could work back from that and say, 
what is the most training volume that some could handle? Is there anyone that is a high enough responder to training that with that level of volume, they could actually hit all these boxes that need to be checked? I think that's a really cool thought experiment. As in, you could create a number of different hybrid challenges and then create the ideal athlete that would be needed to achieve that. Yeah. And I'm sure the whole squat 250 kilos sub five minute uh, mile, I think that was announced like years ago by CrossFit. I need to double check with Fergus this. Uh, But it was only until a few years ago that Fergus and Adam Clink managed to hit that level. Mm-hmm. So it seems like quite a quite a big area of time before we've actually thought, actually, this is actually doable. And now yeah. I, I do think there's a level of, oh, if we can do that, the ceiling, I reckon, is much higher. And then now it's quite fun to try and think, okay, let's put these challenges together. What would be the ideal uh, athlete to be able to do that? And then, then yeah. like you said, it's how can we train them appropriately and get them to recover appropriately to have them have the best chance of achieving that challenge. Be interesting to see where it goes. And I feel like part of it has to do with just the total uh, pool of people that actually want to do these things. I mean, it's only growing now. I'm I'm sure when you started training, getting interested in exercise science as well, it was just the, the fact the response that these things are impossible. If you are trying to get strong and enduring, you're just wasting your time and you're going to be a jack of all trades and a master of not all of these different things that people say. Where now it's well established that you can be strong, you can carry a lot of muscle, you can be enduring. These things are possible. So I think more people that have always wanted to accomplish all these things and just thought that it wasn't an option or going to be doing it. And I think the interesting thing is you see, maybe this isn't the case across the board, but a lot of these people that are amazing hybrid athletes, they're people that aren't traditionally good at most of the sport options available. I will say that the vast majority of CrossFit Games competitors that I've worked with were not very good athletes growing up. They did sports, but they were never the strongest person on their team. They were never the most enduring on their team or the fastest on their team. And it wasn't until doing CrossFit that they realized, hey, I have the ability to be just as strong, whether I'm powerlifting or whether I'm powerlifting and running. My mile time is just as fast when I'm only training for a mile versus when I'm also Olympic weightlifting and doing these other things. And they realize that their gift isn't that they're particularly good at any one thing. In fact, even if they specialize, they are often not very good at any one thing, but they could be quite good at many things simultaneously. And that's kind of the unique aspect. And I do wonder how rare of a trait is this really? I have a hard time believing that the athletes that just happen to do CrossFit and get to this level of fitness, that they're the peak of hybrid athlete development. So I think if you just think of the broad swath of the human population that's actually doing hybrid sports and just the wide genetic variability, that we're probably very far from seeing what people could really do when they want to kind of throw their hat in all these different rings. Mm. Do you think being very good at one particular aspect would then make you not very good at being a hybrid athlete? So because like you described, those athletes were never particularly good at sport. Mm -hmm. 
So they had a generally a lower ceiling at these sports, but they knew they could get the ceiling uh, up in other domains as well. But if you had a ceiling that was really high, like an Elliot Kipchoge high in endurance running, would that then limit your ability to then be a hybrid athlete just because you're just so good in one domain? Yeah, I think to some degree, yes, because one of the things that you see, um, I've also worked with some professional bodybuilders have done physiologic testing with them. The people that are these just naturally incredibly strong people, like I've met some athletes, they're like, when I was in high school, I squatted 225 kilos for a set of five after two years of strength training. And it just boggles my mind because I'm like, I could strength train for the next 15 years and I'm not going to do that for a single rep. Like, it's just not in my makeup. But a lot of these athletes that are naturally exceptionally strong, put on muscle just by looking at a barbell or a dumbbell, what you find is that they cut off blood flow to their peripheral tissues at extremely low percentages of their one rep max. So even using 20% of their one rep max, they could completely desaturate a tissue, which is going to drive mechanical tension. So everything that they do is hypertrophy training. In early in CrossFit, you saw these athletes really dominate the sport because they tend to get good pretty quick, but they have a lower ceiling. So one of the things that you'll notice is if you look at the CrossFit games from 2011, 2012, 2013, the people that were winning the games back then and the top 10 games competitors were much more muscular and heavier than the top CrossFit athletes are now. And that's because that phenotype has been selected against. That person is never going to be the best CrossFitter for the reasons that I've already mentioned. And I think that's where when you see people with very extreme phenotypes, it's probably because they possess a certain key number of traits that make them really good at that sport that they're doing. But by virtue of that, they're also going to possess traits that are going to make them really bad at doing something else. Mm. And that's where having the optimal hybrid athlete, they're probably not world-class at anything that they do. But by virtue of that, they could be quite good at everything. And you could see these numbers across the board that are quite impressive. I think you may have broke a lot of hearts there saying how <laughs> about 10 years ago, the CrossFit athletes were much more jacked and that in turn <laughs> could be their negative downfall of making it in today's CrossFit games. Yeah, I mean, I I've tested a lot of those athletes, like I hate to say it, but when they were on the back ends of their career and trying to be competitive, and I've seen what their muscle physiology looks like, I've done these tests on them and it's very clear when you compare them to the top CrossFit Games athletes now what the differences are. And that's where, like, I remember when grid was a sport, it was kind of like the, the fraternal twin to CrossFit, where it's basically CrossFit for power athletes. Like, a lot of times they ended up being much better grid athletes than they were CrossFit athletes. So, I mean, it may swing back in the other direction eventually if CrossFit changes what their test selection is for. But they have been uh, setting up the events in a way that does not favor those types of athletes. Mm. I'm not too familiar with grid. Uh, it, it, it fizzled out very quickly. It was maybe like a one or two year affair. Well, what is it? I don't think we had it over here in the UK at all. Yeah, yeah I, I think it was um, the States thing. A lot of European athletes would move to the States because it was kind of set up like, uh, the NFL, where it's like each state in the US had its own grid team. So it was basically like 
a team sport version of CrossFit, but all the events were very short and heavy. So it might be like a medley where one athlete needs to run on a field and they do like a deadlift ladder that goes up to 600 pounds. Then another person runs out and they need to do like 30 thrusters at 100 kilos or something like that. So it was CrossFit-esque, but it was very short events that tended to be heavy and really favored powerful athletes. And what you saw is that that sport actually came to prominence when CrossFit was also changing its selection of events. So a lot of these former games competitors that now could not compete at a top level in CrossFit would just go over to grid and dominate in that sport. I think that sport will be very popular here. So I'm surprised it didn't make its yeah. way over here, but yeah, uh, I think that was probably more of like a business choices that yeah. they made than there not being interest because it was actually pretty cool from a spectator standpoint. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely imagine that in the tennis stadiums that they had in the CrossFit mm-hmm. Games, and everyone's like, "Yeah, those are the events that seem to get the most rowdy crowd." <laughs> so yeah, if you've got a sure. sport that's dedicated to those events. Sure, I can imagine the the atmosphere being pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right, Evan, that was absolutely incredible. I've got so many new ideas for my own training. I can't wait to put them into practice. But um, before you go, it'd be great to, for you to describe the... So you know how I talked about at the beginning regarding the blog post that I've, I've read of yours. Uh, where can people find your work? The easiest place to find the bulk of it is um, the Emergent Performance Lab Substack platform. So if they just Google Emergent Performance Lab Substack, they'll be able to find it. Um, That's where I've put pretty much all of my long-form content over the years. I also tend to use Instagram as a mini-blog instead of posting pictures. So that's where I post a lot of short-form content. Which I appreciate a lot. I'm glad someone does. I've... uh, I've been told that Instagram's not a place for blogging, which is news to me. So I'm going to keep doing that and hopefully people enjoy it. (laughs) Well, we'll definitely put all of that in the the show notes. Evan, thank you so much. That was amazing. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun.